Well, good morning. Man, I am, um, I am excited to open God's word with you today. And if you want to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8, that is our text for this morning. Uh, I'm excited to share this with you for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, um, I know your character. And here's what I mean by that. Like God in his grace in our brief history has given us folks at Gospel Hope who when they hear the word of God, they tend to act on it. Not perfectly, not perfectly, but faithfully. And because of that, I know that what I'm going to share or my hope is that what I'm going to share this morning is going to make a significant impact of the life of some fatherless children out there today. I pray that God will use this text to stir up your heart to in some way say, Lord, what can I do? And you will move with acts of compassion to some of the most vulnerable in our society. So will you pray with me as we start this morning that God would do just that. Lord, we need you. And I ask for your help this morning that you would draw near to us that you would stir us up, that you would encourage us, that you would convict us, that you would challenge us. Use your word today in Christ, I pray. Amen. Do we have any baseball fans here? Baseball is kind of like, it's not as popular as it once was. But you know one thing that's really interesting about baseball is the vocabulary of baseball. You ever watched a baseball game or listened to a commentator and they have all kinds of weird statements in baseball. For instance, in no other sport could an announcer say something like ducks on a pond, high cheese, and a web gym in a single sentence and have that make sense. And some of you are like, I know exactly what that means. And some of you are like, you are speaking a foreign language right now. But in baseball, there was one particular phenomenon that has been talked about in myriads of different ways, okay? So I'm going to start listing these out, and you raise your hand as soon as you know what this phenomenon in baseball is. You understand what I'm saying? So when you know what it is, you raise your hand. So I am talking about the bomb, the dinger. The souvenir shot, the upper decker, the four bagger, the quadruple, going yard, touching them all, getting it all, and of course, the long ball. Obviously, I am talking about the what? Home run. Home run. The commentators explain the home run in all kinds of different ways. Here's the thing. All of those descriptors are different, but you know what? They're all true. Well, here's what I mean. Some of them um, refer to how far the ball was hit. It was hit out of the park or an upper decker. Others highlight how hard the ball was hit. It was a dinger or you got all of that one. Still others draw attention to the result of hitting a home run. You touch them all or it's a four bagger. You say, this is really boring. I don't understand what you're talking about. Well, I'm getting somewhere with this, okay? I bring this up because the Bible takes a very similar tactic when speaking about the salvation that Jesus purchased for his people. 
Now, I'm not saying that the scripture describes Christ's work on behalf of sinners in pithy one-liner statements. But what I do mean is that the authors of scripture use a wide variety of descriptors to highlight different aspects of what Jesus has accomplished on behalf of his people. Here's why. Because there is no single metaphor great enough to sufficiently capture the greatness of our salvation. If you read the Bible, salvation is described in all kinds of different ways. And the reason is one word picture, one one mental image, one metaphor is not sufficient to capture the greatness of our salvation. So the Bible talks about justification. That is a courtroom analogy, a forensic analogy, and it reminds believers that they have been declared righteous in Christ as if they were standing in a court of law. The Bible employs biological metaphors of regeneration to communicate that those who trust in Christ are no longer dead and powerless, but made alive through the powerful resurrection of Jesus. The biblical authors created the sociological word picture of redemption to show that Christ's people have been released from their bondage to sin and set free to follow him. And in our text today, the Apostle Paul unpacks a familiar analogy, a family analogy of adoption, reminding us that when a person trusts in Jesus, they automatically become a member of God's family. Over in 1 John, the beloved apostle is so jazzed about this truth, he can hardly get the words out. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, he says it this way. See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called the children of God. And then a little exclamation part. And we are. Like, it's not enough just to say it, but he has to put that explanation mark on it. We are actually children of God. Part of our salvation is, yes, we are justified. Part of our salvation is, yes, we are redeemed. Part of our salvation is, yes, we are regenerated. And all those things are wonderful and beautiful, but also part of our salvation is this. When you trust in Christ, you are adopted. You become a child of God. And to be honest, our response to this wonderful truth should be similar to John's response. That is what we are. Here's my point today. It's simply this. We must value the fatherhood of God. It must be something that we deeply, deeply value. Now, I realize that a statement like that, we must value the fatherhood of God, may seem a little bit unusual. Because if you've been around the church block at all for any length of time, the fact that God is our father is mostly just assumed. Have you ever stopped to think about that? We just kind of assume God is our father. After all, when we pray, how did Jesus teach us to pray? What's the first words? Remember? Our father. And when you read the Bible, the first person of the Trinity is most often referred to simply as what? Father. We don't really think about it that deeply because it's so embedded in the message of scripture. It's not that we don't believe in the fatherhood of God. It's just that it rests kind of lightly on our shoulders. It's kind of like friction. When is the last time you deeply reflected about friction? Anybody here last week? You know, just had about an hour or so. Okay, Sean, you're weird. Okay, yeah, that's weird. You just had a time and, you know, and I just really want to think about friction for a while. Ooh, that's good. But, But without friction, I couldn't stand up on this stage right now. 
without friction, you'd all be kind of like sliding out of your seats. Friction touches virtually every aspect of our life. But do we think about it very often? No, we assumed it. And in many ways, the fatherhood of God is just like that. Friction is something that we assume. It's not something that we cherish. And I fear that sometimes we think exactly the same way that God is our father. The fatherhood of God ought to be something that we value For it has far-reaching implications in our lives. The tentacles of the doctrine of the fatherhood of God touches virtually every aspect of your life. And I think that is particularly true today. Because we live in a day and age when fatherlessness is almost epidemic. It's everywhere. Uh, Let me illustrate in a couple ways. Do you know that there are approximately 26 million double orphans in the world right now? A double orphan is a child whose both of their parents are dead. So a double orphan, no one to care for them, 26 million. If you just went by UNICEF's definition of orphan, there'd be around 160 million, which that simply means they've lost one of their parents and they're in a very vulnerable position, basically. So there are vulnerable children all over the place. There are around a half of million children in the U.S. foster care system, which means that the government has deemed that there has been enough disruption in these homes that children could no longer stay with either of their parents. Can you imagine? Some of you have been in that situation before, right? But it's got to be a pretty dire situation where a child can no longer be in their home because there's such turmoil or such danger or, or no safety in there. Approximately today in the United States of America, there are 20 million children who live without a father figure in their home. That's roughly one in four of every child in America. Okay, now get ready for this. In DeKalb County, that number is reversed. In DeKalb County, it's approximately three. Three. Three, goodness. (laughs) Three in four children who grew up in a fatherless type situation. Uh, the, The need, the need to care for fatherlessness is desperate. And the doctrine of the fatherhood of God helps us to understand what our responsibility as the church of Christ is. But I want to move beyond these stats into reality. Raise your hand today. Raise your hand if either you or somebody close to you, close friend, a family member, has been impacted deeply by fatherlessness in their life. Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Put them up. Now look around the room. Okay, you can put them down. It's not just a statistic, right? It's reality. It's right here. It's right now. And so this text is not just some pie-in-the-sky theology. It has tremendous relevance for our lives today. This text reminds us that regardless of your past experience, if you trust in Jesus, you are now a child of the greatest father of all. So if your past, your father has been absent from your life, take heart. Take heart because your heavenly father is and will always be present for you. 
And if you had a good father, let his love point you to the father who loves you even more than him. So what does it particularly mean to be a child of God? Or to put it another way, what does the doctrine of adoption teach us about God's love for his children? Why should we value the fatherhood of God? I want to give you three reasons, Lord willing, from the text this morning, why the fatherhood of God should be deeply important and valuable to you. You ready? So the benefits of being God's child. Number one, security. The passage begins with this, verse 15. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption. According to the Bible, all who believe the gospel immediately receive the Holy Spirit. God quite literally dwells and comes and lives in his people. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 says it this way. Don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the spirit of God lives, what's it say? That the spirit of God lives where? In you. When you trust in Jesus, God literally makes you his home. And when the Spirit takes up residence in us, he performs a specific function. Namely, he delivers us as God's children from slavish fear and serves as the Spirit in adoption in our heart. That is an amazing thing. When God's Spirit comes into a child of God, he begins to whisper to them, you are not a slave anymore. You are now a child of God. I am the Spirit of adoption who is living in you, those apart from Christ, should live, should live with a sense of anxiousness, even fear, for they do not know if and when the acts of God's righteous judgment will fall. They are justly condemned and unable to do anything to rescue themselves from the God's wrath. If you are not a child of God, the scripture teaches this, you should be afraid. You should be anxious because God is not your father. He is your judge. He does not keep you safe. You need to be kept safe from him. You know, there's kind of a, a, a popular genre in movies and TV, and it's kind of these period pieces built around World War II when the Nazis were in control. How many of you have watched or read something like that, right? They're pretty common. Uh, there, there's been movies like Schindler's List, The Piano, The Pianist, Life is Beautiful, and recently I just watched one called The Zookeeper's Wife about Poland and how they were occupied by the Nazis. There's books like Night and The Diary of Anne Frank and The Book Thief. There's a common theme in each of these pieces of literature and art. What happens is essentially this. The, the Nazis are in control and there's usually a hero or a heroine who is usually protecting someone from the Nazi regime. Maybe it's, it's uh, protecting some Jewish people so that they don't get found out. And if you read or watch those movies or books, here's how I watch it. It's like the whole time, I'm like, you know, they could come in at any time. I mean, 
There's no safety here. Like, there's just this anxiousness and fear over the whole story because you don't know when the bad guys are going to kind of burst in, get the door, and do terrible things to the people that are trying to hide. Listen, listen very carefully to this. Whether you realize it or not, every human being has been in a similar position. All of us were the ones hiding and waiting for the judgment to come upon us. All of us were fully deserving of God's impending judgment and completely powerless to rescue ourselves. There was nothing we can do. We were hiding from God and in anxiousness and fear saying, you are not my father. You are actually coming to get me. But here is the unspeakably good news. Listen, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption. When you trust in Jesus, you are no longer the slave cowering in fear, but you have become a child of the living God. Jesus rescues us from the omnipresent fear and gives us complete safety. Instead of shame, we get acceptance. Instead of isolation, we receive welcome. Instead of condemnation, we get blessing. There is an unspeakably wide gap between a runaway slave and a beloved child. We are not runaway slaves. If we have trusted in Christ, we have been welcomed into his family and we do not have to be fearful because we have been adopted. We have been made child, children of the living God and because of that, we are secure. Listen, through Jesus, we know God as father instead of judge. If you've never trusted in Jesus, the only way you know God is as judge. And that's a tragedy because though he is impartial, he has got, you've got a rap sheet the size of your arm and he will bring his judgment and it will be swift and it will be severe and it is inescapable unless, unless you turn away and trust in the work of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. If you do that, you don't just get, you know, not guilty pounded. You get welcomed in the family. He says, not just not guilty, pull up a seat. Come to the table. You are now my child and I love you and I delight in you. And my love is not going anywhere. Because of the work of Christ, our relationship with God is secure. If you have trusted in Jesus, you will never, 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 hear me, never, never, never feel one ounce of the sting of God's wrath. Because on the cross, Jesus drunk the full cup of the fury of God's wrath in your place. If you have trusted in Christ, God has no more wrath for you. It is all gone. It has been drunk deeply by the Savior. God is not angry with you if you are his child. He loves you. He delights in you. And his love is, as we unsang, it is unbreakable. There is nothing that can stop God from loving you. All you will ever know, all you will ever know if you've trusted in Jesus is the loving care of a heavenly father. Man, If my faith in Christ is true, listen to the statement. 
God can no more disown me than he could disown Jesus himself. My love is so secure because of Christ that God could no more disown me than he could disown his son because his spirit dwells in me and I am united with Christ. We are utterly and profoundly secure if you are a child of God. Shortly after uh, we adopted my son Peyton, um, I remember one day, he he was pretty young, probably right around two years old. And I I um, I was getting ready to go somewhere you know, and he was frantic. Like he didn't want me to leave at this point. And he was just kind of beside himself. And, and I was like, man, what is this kid's like, kind of like get it together. Like I'm just going to the store or something like that. It's not a big deal. And I said kind of like just real flippantly, like, hey buddy, I'm not going to leave you. Like, duh, don't you know that? I'm not going to leave you. And it struck me almost immediately, and I was like, he doesn't know that. He didn't know that I'm not going to leave him. Because in his life, there is a story, right, of being left. He doesn't know what it is to really be embraced by a father who, who won't let him go. And we don't even know all the details of what happened in Peyton's story, but those words were hollow in this little boy's mind. But here's the thing. The God of the universe is saying to you, if you've trusted in him, I am not going to leave you. And that's a promise. And you know how secure that promise is? It is as secure as the death of my son. I sent Jesus to die on the cross to rescue you from sin. I put my spirit in you so that I could say these words. I am not going to leave you. If you are a child of God, God cannot and will not leave you because he purchased you with his son and gave you the down payment of his love by the person of his Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be a child of God? It means that we will be loved now and forevermore and there is nothing that can ever sever that connection with God. Number two. Not only does being a child of God bring security, it also brings intimacy. The metaphor of adoption communicates that when we trust in Jesus, we don't just have a relationship with God. It is actually an intimate relationship with God. One of the effects of the indwelling spirit's presence, he begins to confirm the true identity of those who are in Christ. That is, he starts to convince them of what they really are, namely the children of God. The Holy Spirit, right now, if you've trusted in Jesus, is working in your heart and he's saying, Nicole, Nicole, you are a child of God. Stop doubting that. Stop questioning that. Zach, you are a child of God. Don't doubt it for a minute. Read, you're a child of God. Remember that, remember that, remember that. And when temptation comes, when condemnation comes, when guilt comes, you are a child of God. Here's what it says in verse 16. The spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. 
The Father gave his children the Spirit so that they remember who they are. The more that you are convinced that you are a child of God, the more freedom you will feel to relate with him on a deeply personal level. Any of you ever keep your distance from God because you feel guilty? Come on. You like do your, your version of Protestant penance? Kind of like, well, I really blew it on Tuesday, so I better not pray till Thursday. God says, that is hogwash. And the spirit in you says, you are a child of God. Get up and go to your father. He loves you and he wants to hear from you. You are not cast off by him. He doesn't just want to say, this is my son. He wants to say, this is my son. This is my daughter. And there is an intimacy between us because of what my son has done. This is highlighted powerfully back in verse 15. Back up one verse. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The term Abba is a loaded one. The word is in Aramaic and it would be roughly translated Papa or Daddy. It was as if in order to express himself properly, Paul had to slip back into his heart language because he wanted the level of intimacy to be clearly understood. When you talk with Kelvin, where are you, Kel? Kelvin's right here. Kelvin is from England. And when he starts talking about his mother, he refers to, him, he refers to her as his mum because that's what they say in Britain. They're weird for lots of different reasons. That's just one of them. When he talks about her, he has kind of a little pet name, right? Because, because that's his heart language. That's what he remembers. In the same sense, Paul is saying, this intimacy is so, intimacy is so close, it's not just father. It's papa. Daddy. Your intimacy level with the father is so close that you even have kind of like pet names for him. There is an intimacy level that the Lord welcomes you into his presence. Because of Jesus' work, God is our daddy. As a result, we not only have the right to approach him, we are welcomed into his presence. <laughs> there is a, a photo I, I saw not too long ago. Do we have it or no? Is there a photo? Negatory. Okay. There's a photo I saw not too long ago, and it was when President Obama was in office in his very first term, okay? And there he was kind of lounging in the Oval Office, like feet kicked back like he owned the place. I don't know. What do you think? He works there or something? Right. He's sitting there, and, and in his arms and on his lap are these two little girls. Like, at first glance, you could be like, well, what are they doing in there? Like, I mean, they're just... Maybe they're Americans and they're citizens and stuff, but what right have they to stroll in there? Well, you know exactly who those little girls are, right? It's his daughters. And the reason that they're able to like just stroll into the Oval Office and have this private, personal, intimate moment with the most powerful person in the world is why? Because he is their daddy. He is a, they are able to have that level of connection with him because the relationship is there. There is a level of intimacy. And listen to me, church. You are, you are children of God. And he says, call me daddy. Call me papa. I don't just want you to say father in heaven. 
I want you to say you are my daddy and you care for me deeply. God does not merely tolerate his children. He delights in them. You are not a burden to God. You are not an inconvenience to him. You are not a bother to him. You are his joy and his delight. Let us then, Hebrews 4 says, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. If you have trusted in Jesus, God does not simply allow you into his presence. Like, okay, you can come in. He invites you in. Would we dare to believe? Would you dare? Would you dare to believe today? Would you dare to believe that God wants to be close to you? He just doesn't want to be your savior. He does. But would you dare to believe? Would you have the audacity to believe this morning that God wants to be close to you? You say, what about my past? Jesus paid for it if you trust in him. What about all that I've done? I continue to fail. Jesus paid for it if you trust it in him. Would you dare to believe that God wants you to love him and be close enough to him where it is appropriate for you to say, Papa, Daddy. The doctrine of adoption gets God into the sense that he says, I want to be intimate and I want to be close with you because of the work of Jesus on our behalf. Number three. The third benefit of being a child of God is simply this hope. Being a child fills us with hope. We have, we have an unspeakably great future in front of us because God is our father. Look at verse 17. And if children, also heirs. And if heirs, then co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we also may glorified with, with him. You see, believers are not only made just children, but heirs. In fact, they are made joint heirs or fellow heirs with Christ himself. This is a breathtaking promise. Just stop and meditate on the reality of that promise for a minute. If you have trusted in the atoning work of Christ on your behalf, you are the heir of God. Not of some rich uncle, not of Bill Gates, not of what Elon Musk, somebody just, who just passed Bill Gates? Who's the guy? Yes, yes, the Amazon dude. Bezos just passed Bill Gates as the wealthiest American. Not even Bezos. Trying to take over the world with his drones and everything, right? If you have trusted in Jesus, you are an heir of God. So get your mathematical hats on for a minute. Okay, okay. So what am I getting? What is my inheritance? How big is it to be a joint heir with Christ? Well, let's say it's significant. All right, let's look at Psalm 2, first of all. Psalm 2, God promises that the whole world would be the inheritance of his son. Psalm 2, verse 8. I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possessions. And if you're a co-heir with Jesus, that means in the end, the whole earth is yours. But the whole world is just the tip of the iceberg. That's just the beginning of the inheritance. David says there's something even greater than inheriting the entire world. Here's what it says in Psalm 73. Who do I have in heaven but you? 
And I desire nothing on earth besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion, my allotment, my inheritance forever. Listen, if you are a child of God, you get God. Your inheritance is not just this earth, as awesome as that is. Your inheritance is God himself. The ultimate inheritance of the children of God is God himself. The gospel is fundamentally good news because in the end, you get God. I mean, heaven, streets of gold, fruit that doesn't, you know, renewed heaven, renewed earth, all that's awesome. But would it be good if God wasn't there? But God is saying, listen, for all eternity, I, this being beyond your comprehension, I, this being that is beyond what you can think, I will forever pour out my love and blessing on you and no more sin to mess it up. I will forever be pouring out blessings upon blessings upon blessings on you. That's what you get. In Ephesians 2, it says that in ages to come, in ages to come, God will show us the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness. What does that mean? It means that God can't just give us heaven in one shot. It will take God forever to pour out the blessings of him on us. Why? Because he is infinite. We are finite, and it takes infinite, infinite amount of time for the infinite to bless the finite. God will simply be forever giving himself to you. That's why Paul can say down in verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not even worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. One day, if you've trusted in Jesus, you will have your bodies transformed. You will receive the world as your possessions. You will be free to enjoy God forever and ever. And because of this, no matter what you are facing, you can look to the future with hope. There's a famous little story uh, about John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. And he painted this analogy. Here's how it goes. I'll just read it for you in Newton's own words. Suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate. And his carriage should break down one mile before he got to the city which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out the remaining mile. My carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. Brothers and sisters, listen. Sometimes this life is hard, is it not? Yes or no? Yes. But there is hope ahead of you. There is hope ahead of you. There is hope ahead ahead of you. And no matter what befalls you in this life, if you are a child of God, you only got a mile more to walk. Hang in there because you are going to inherit something that is unspeakably good. You can hope now because there is hope ahead. So you might hear all this and say, I mean, this is great. Wow, that's awesome. But I thought this is Orphan Sunday. I mean, what does this doctrinal stuff have to do with caring with, for the fatherless? The answer is everything. Here's why. As one theologian put it, Christianity has a unique vertical to horizontal movement. Christians love horizontally because God has first loved us vertically. 
We forgive even as God in Christ has forgiven us. We welcome others as Christ has welcomed us. God's vertical kindness to us inevitably moves us out in horizontal to kindness to those in needs. In other words, it's simply this. Recognizing that we were all spiritual orphans should cause us all to care for about physical orphans. We've, we've all been here, right? We've all been insecure. We've all been isolated instead of intimate. We've all been hopeless because of hopeful, but because of Christ, we've received all those things. And now, because we have received it, we can overflow to others with that which we've received. Because all who have trusted in Christ have experienced the security of being in God's family. The intimacy of being loved by the Father. The hope that comes from being a joint heir with Christ. Our hearts should break about the fatherless in our midst who do not even have a taste of these blessings. In fact, the Bible explicitly teaches we should love others because we have experienced his love. 1 John chapter 4 verse 19. It says this. We love. Why? Because he first loved us. Because you've been made a child of God, it should propel and impel and, and force you outwards to begin to shower that love that you've received on others. So what does this mean in regards to orphan care? D does every Christian need to adopt an orphan? Though that would be incredible. That would be going beyond what the scripture teaches. But here's what the Bible does say. We looked at it a few weeks ago. It says in James chapter 1, verse 27, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans. So we should look after orphans. We should look after the fatherless because we have been looked after by God. For some, looking after orphans means adopting. For others, it means fostering. For others, it will mean mentoring. For still others, it means supporting an adoptive family or coming alongside a single mom. The point is not how you look after orphans, but that you look after orphans. But here's the thing. As much as I hope as a result of today, there are fatherless children in our neighborhoods, in our city, and in our world whose lives are dramatically impacted by our church family, let me remind you of the simple reality. We do not care for the fatherless. We do not care for orphans in order to be accepted by God, but because we have been accepted. Look, God never has and God never will accept you on the basis of how compassionate you are. That's good news. Like, if you go out of here today and you do not like you do not do something about this. I, I don't think like God is pleased about that. I think all of us should be caring for orphans in some way. That's what the scripture says. But God's love for you is not based on how well you do with this. But here's the reality. When you stop and meditate on how deeply you have been loved, how deeply you have received from God, what the adoption of the heavenly father means to you, should it not begin to stir our hearts to those who haven't tasted that? Should it not begin to push us outward to those in need? Um, our compassion for others is simply a response to the compassion that we have received for God. Listen, uh, we adopted our son Peyton 
And we didn't do it like to earn brownie points with God. It wasn't like we're like, man, God doesn't love us enough. And so let's go adopt. Let's go care for an orphan so that God loves us more. That wasn't the motivation. And I don't want anybody to hear us saying, hey, you need to do this or else, or else God won't love you or God won't be delighted in you. God, you've always been accepted based on the work of Jesus. But when you embrace that, it can cause us, it can enable you, it can empower you to care for those who haven't tasted that love. So let's be a church that first, first and foremost looks vertically and meditates on the adoption that we have received. And then when we do that, let us let it propel us to move out horizontally and say, who are those who need to taste the same type of love that I've had? Will you pray with me this morning? Lord, thank you so much for this day and for your goodness. Thank you that through Christ we are accepted. Thank you that he has, his work makes us welcomed into your family. Lord, I pray that you would cause our church to be moved with compassion to the most vulnerable among us because you were moved with compassion towards us. Thank you, Father, for your goodness and your grace. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.